Happy New Year, Grant. That's Pastor Rob. Great to see you today. Finish this sentence for me. A man's home is his castle. That's the word we were looking for. A man's home is his castle. You know, it's a phrase we don't use very often anymore for lots of reasons. But the fact is, whether you are a man or a woman, whether you are a couple or a single, your home is in many ways kind of your own mini kingdom. Let me tell you what I mean by that. You know, outside of our homes, we don't have the capacity to decide what the rules are, what's good and what's bad, right? What's appropriate behavior and what's not. We don't get to decide what happens when the rules are broken. But in our homes, we do. We get to make those decisions. We also get to decide simple things like where where does the furniture go in the living room? Does it meet my needs or does it meet my family's needs? And I'm not nearly as concerned about what anybody else thinks. I get to decide what color to paint the walls or what where, what kind of fabric I want to use for the curtains. The truth is that is a, the place where we have an opportunity to put into place our desires. And, and really, it's under our control if it's our home. That's the reason why when someone breaks into our home and kind of violates that security and violates that space, my mini kingdom, right, violates that space, that I become so upset and concerned because that's not so supposed to happen, right? This is the space that I control, unlike everything else in the world, which I really can't. We are in the middle of our series called The Main Thing, and it's a four-week series. It's focused on helping us reclaim our focus on Jesus Christ, despite the chaos around us, by keeping Christ and his kingdom at the center of our daily living. This week, um, the, the challenge is, is very simple, as Jesus is going to try to help us consider who the king of our mini-kingdom is, who is the king of our lives. And the problem there is this. The problem there is, if I am king, then by default, Jesus is not. And that is really the polar opposite opposite of what he's calling us to. To dig into this, we're going to look at Matthew chapter 6, verses 1 through 7. It continues our study of the Sermon on the Mount. In fact, almost all of this series is based on the Sermon on the Mount. Last week we discussed worry, right? Placing Jesus as the king of our world instead of ourselves eliminates much of the worries that we, that we have in our lives because we recognize that when it's all said and done, Jesus has got it under control. And so as we dig into this, Matthew chapter 6 verses 1 through 7, we're adding another layer of our understanding of what it means to have Jesus be at the center of our lives. Let's dig into our scripture today. I'm going to read out of the Christian Standard Bible. It says, be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others, to be seen by them. Otherwise, you have no reward with your Father in heaven. So whenever you give to the poor, don't sound like a trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets, to be applauded by people. Truly, I tell you, they have their reward. But when you give to the poor, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, 
so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Whenever you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, because they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by people. Truly, I tell you, they have their reward. But when you pray, go into your private room, shut your door, and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. When you pray, don't babble like the Gentiles, since they imagine they will be heard for their many words. And don't be like them, because your Father knows the things you need before you ask him. You know, in the time of Jesus, as his disciples were reading this, they would have considered or lived in their reality these this idea of many kingdoms. It was very much about control and about power. As we read the Bible, we see on or right before the time of Jesus' birth, the king of the area of Jerusalem, the Jewish people, was King Herod the Great. He was placed there by Rome, who actually he reported to yet another king, right? The emperor, the Roman emperor. So even he wasn't in charge of everything. But shortly after Herod died, and in the time as Jesus is speaking, there are actually three King Herods. There is King Herod Antipas, who is the king over Galilee and the area east of the Jordan. That's the, the king that Jesus would find himself before in Luke chapter 23. But there's also King Herod Philip, who's king of the area northeast of the Sea of Galilee. And finally, King Herod Archelaus, his third son who's king in Judea and Samaria for a very short period of time, in fact, about two years, because he upset the Roman emperor, and the Roman emperor actually sent him to France, to an area of Gaul, which was considered a punishment to be the king there. And so they will have watched Herod's three sons constantly struggling for who's in charge of what. Who's doing what, when, where, why, and how? Who has the power in a certain area? They've created their own mini kingdoms. And the sad part is that kind of scramble for power, it was at that time, and honestly still is right now, still is a constant. We constantly feel like we're trying to find control in our lives and our governments are trying to find control or power in the world. It's this constant jockeying back and forth. The problem with that though is that it, is, it was and is the people who suffer when there is this struggle for power. And today's text helps us determine whether or not we are fighting with Jesus over control of our own many kingdoms, of our own lives. Because the truth is, if we're in that power struggle, it is us who will suffer. So what does this text tell us? Well, the first thing, the first question we should be asking ourselves about whether or not Jesus is king in our world is this, is who writes the rules? If you ever had a teenager in your house, as they're beginning to grow up and they begin to push the boundaries. Let's go with that. They push the boundaries on what the rules are in your house. If you ever uttered a phrase, something similar to, you know, uh, <laughs> when you grow up and you get your own place, you can make the rules. But right now, 
I make the rules. That's, that's, that's me saying when you grow up and you want to have your own kingdom, your own mini kingdom, your own place you control, great, but you can't have mine. You can't have mine. And Jesus, is, Jesus begins his text today with, with a warning when he says, be careful. Be careful is the connotation there is something similar to having a fence around your yard and having a big sign that says, beware of dog. The idea is if you choose to go down this road, it's going to cost you something. It's going to hurt. It's not going to be good. But what does he tell us to be aware of? He says, beware of practicing, and this is a word I think we miss in here, your righteousness. You know, we focus on that says, you know, don't speak loudly in front of others. Don't show off. Don't boast. Don't. Yet that's true, but that's just a symptom of what's going on here. The real problem is that the people he's speaking to, and sometimes us when we're managing our own mini kingdom, is that we've replaced his righteousness with our own. Let me give you some examples. If we were to consider who is writing the rules of what is righteous and what is not in our life, if we look at Matthew 5, verses 44 through 45, also Sermon on the Mount, right? It says, but I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be children of your father who in heaven. So that's, that's, his rule, God's rule says, God's rule is love your enemies. But if I'm being honest and I'm rewriting that rule, when I'm replacing his righteousness with my own, I might write it differently. I really might write, <laughs> but I tell you, refrain from doing evil things to people you don't like, and God will reward you for it. <laughs> and so, so I've lowered the bar. I've changed the understanding of what the rule is. And I've substituted God's righteousness for my own because it fits where I want it to be. Let me give you another example. In Ephesians 6.1, it says, children, obey your parents in the Lord because this is right. If I was a teenager, I would have probably written it something like this. Children, begrudgingly do what you're told for now putting the least amount of effort putting in the least amount of effort possible and complaining to all your friends about it true or false you did it as a teenager and your teenager probably doesn't now or at least you feel like they do that's a struggle for understanding what the rules are of the kingdom you're in and what you want them to be and we have that same struggle with god let me give you another example. In 1 Timothy 6, 11, it says, but you, man of God, flee from these things. And when he says that, he's talking about greed. He's talking about money and about wealth and about that being the source of your meaning and who you are. And it says, and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. But if I'm being frank about where I am sometimes and where I see others, it's I might write it differently. I might write it, but I, a man of God, will lean on my own provision as long as I can before turning to the things of God out of desperation. If I'm trying to write my own rules, honestly, then it shouldn't surprise me that my mini kingdom is crashing down around me because that's one thing about earthly kingdoms, whether it's my mini kingdom or somebody else's or King Herod Antipas's, they all fall. 
And they never go the way God wants them to unless we crown him king. The second question we need to ask ourselves that we learn from this text is this, am I consumed with being happy? It says in verse two, so whenever you give to the poor, don't sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do on the synagogues and on the streets to be applauded by people. And here's the key. Truly, I tell you, they have their reward. That phrase is repeated multiple times in just these few verses of scripture. Truly, I tell you, they have their reward. If we are, and, and I think we as a culture are focused very much on finding our reward. In fact, finding our immediate reward. The problem with that is if we're focused on being happy, on finding that immediate reward, how does this make me feel in the moment? What does this gain me right now? How does this help me maintain my kingdom right here and right now in this time and this place? How does this help me feel secure right now? The problem is when we're so hyper-focused on right now, we neglect the eternal call on our lives. We neglect the relationship that we are intended to have with God. We neglect our opportunities to grow. Let me give you an example. Um, you know, if you pardon the phrase, as we're working in the, in, the, in the world, you know, we know that there are consequences to not showing up for work. And so as a result, we will, and this is the phrase I want you to pardon, we will beg, borrow, lie, cheat, and steal. Not really. But we will go the extra mile to make sure that we get to work because there is a penalty if we do not. And because we will be unhappy if we have to deal with that penalty. If we are um, in sports, if we're a high school student in sports and we're, we're we want to play on the team, on the volleyball team or the basketball team. We will do whatever we need to do. And honestly, we as parents will tell our kids and help our kids do whatever they need to do to make sure they make it to all the practices, that they buy all the gear, that they go the extra mile and do all the things they need to do to get that done as they're chasing that immediate reward of getting to play, of increased playing time, or in just feeling good about their accomplishments. That's the immediate reward. And, and certainly God is not anti-happy, but I would ask this, do we do the same thing when it comes to the things of God? Do we go the extra mile to pursue what he has us doing? I was talking to, to somebody last night about something called a full circle faith, this idea that our walk with God involves learning to trust Jesus first and foremost, and then developing a life that, that honors God. And that's some of the challenge we're talking about here. But there's, there's a third step that we leave out often, and that step is making disciples, right? And, and I really do believe that we often get to the place in our lives, and this is the place where we decide whether or not we are king or God is king where we say, you know what? We've learned to trust Jesus. We're honoring God with our actions. I'm comfortable right here. I'm comfortable right here in this place. And we choose not to follow the orders of the king. We choose not to do this part that requires us to make disciples because that requires me to trust 
that he will carry me where I cannot carry myself. That requires me to do something that is uncomfortable. And that requires me to do something that probably in the moment doesn't make me too happy because I'm too busy being scared. But that has eternal implications and honestly is a critical part of what it means to grow in our faith. I think our faith is often stunted because we are too busy chasing being happy. And if something takes us past that, if it requires us to give up our immediate reward for something eternal, we balk at it. When the fact is, if Jesus is king, that's really not an option. And so the final question we should be asking ourselves based on our text today is this, am I authentic? Does the picture others see of me match who I am when it's just me and my king? Verse 5 says, Whenever you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites because they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by people. And here's that phrase again. Truly, I tell you, they have their reward. If our motivation for following Christ or our motivation for showing up at church or our motivation for putting a... a a picture on our wall that has scripture on it or, or posting something on Facebook is so that people will think we are godly. If that's our primary motivation, then honestly, we're not letting Jesus be the king. We're being the king of our lives. We're deciding what others need to see or not see. It's called, in, in the political world, it's called spin control, right? It's called determining when a message comes out, what it's going to say, what it's going to mean, and which direction it's going to go. Is it going to go in my favor or is it going to go against my enemies? But either way, I don't want it to hurt me. And sometimes when we're talking about where we are in our walk with God, we'd work very hard to spin things in such a way that puts us in a positive light, that things are going well, that we are doing good, that we are connected with God in a deep and intimate and powerful way. And we want people to see that picture, that spin of who we are. But verse 6 challenges that notion that that matters. It says this, it says, But when you pray, go into your private room, shut your door, and pray to your Father who is in secret, secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. You know what this means? There is no hiding from God. There is no spin control with God. And at, at, at our heart of hearts, we know that. We know that if God is the king of our lives, then we are the same in public as we are in private. And there's no hiding that from God as much as we can successfully hide it from everybody else. You can't hide that from him. And that is the challenge I think all of us have. We all want to be loved by others. We want to be appreciated by others. We want to be approved of by others. Even those of us who say, I don't care about anybody's approval, they're fibbing. There's somebody in their life that they care about their approval of. Maybe even, maybe they may not even know it themselves, but they do. 
Otherwise, we wouldn't try to fit so hard into social conventions. Otherwise, we wouldn't try to make sure that people always see us in, a, in our best light. We wouldn't do things like clean up our house before guests come over. We would just be who we are. And though we might try to do that with other people, convincing ourselves we can do that with God is probably one of the biggest lies we tell ourselves. This whole section of the Sermon on the Mount is about that. It's about the challenge and the difficulty of who's really in charge of your life, who is the king. Right after this section of scripture in verse 8 and following, he goes into the Lord's Prayer. In verse 10, it says, let your kingdom come, let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The implication there is his will is not being done on earth as it is in heaven, both globally and personally. Right after that, he jumps into a discussion about money and about greed and essentially says in verse 24, no man can serve two masters, right? No man can successfully serve two masters. And, and even if those, two mas- if those two masters are money and God, which is the ones he specifically lists, you can't do that. But the truth is we also can't serve two masters if one is God and one is me. He is either king or he is not. And the truth is, if we are genuine followers of Christ, we recognize that challenge in our lives. We recognize that we like having our many kingdoms. And we recognize that we need to constantly work at humbling ourselves and submitting our kingdoms to his rule. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May his face shine upon you. May he grant you favor, be gracious to you, and give you peace. God bless.